Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organisation sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others and the planet. I'm your host, Brad Jennings, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. I'm so pleased to have Mr. Chris Butterworth with me today. Chris is a leading researcher, author, and consultant in the field of enterprise excellence. Chris has dedicated his career to understanding how to engage, develop, and sustain a culture of continuous improvement within organizations. Chris has won the Shingo Publication Award twice and is recognized as a leading speaker in the field of leadership and organizational change. Let's get into the episode. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really been looking forward to our conversation. Thank you, Brad. It's, it's great to be here and I'm looking forward to the discussion. So Chris, where did your work and involvement in Enterprise Excellence start? What got you into this field? I, I was very lucky to, to start my career really at uh, JCB, JC Bamford Excavators, uh, a family-owned firm. And uh, they had a great culture there. Of, uh, in, in, everything was about improvement and efficiency. Uh, a lot of collaboration uh, and um, everyone really worked together uh, to, to make the company successful. So I, I learned a lot. It was a great uh, grounding. And, and in the job role I was in, I was in purchasing. I had to work a lot with suppliers and with operations on how we could make things uh, better and how we could improve things. And it really just set me up for, for, for a great mindset in that area. Well, that's, that's fortunate that from your first career out of university and into the workforce, you ended up in an organization that had a culture of continuous improvement. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And then from there, I uh, I joined a, a startup facility, which was a new factory being built by Jaguar. Uh, it's a joint venture, and they were creating their own stamping factory uh, called the Jaguar Body Parts, and that was built as as a lean factory. So right from day one, with a lean mm-hmm. culture, was and it was explicit. Everyone wore the same uniform from the uh, chief executive officer all the way through, uh, and we worked in teams, and we we learnt how to do stuff that we just didn't know was possible. Like, and I used to take four hours to change over the presses, and we were getting it down to 15, 20 minutes, and and it, that was that was really the big learning experience where where I, I, I first came across the whole concept of continuous improvement as, as a way of thinking and as a, as a culture. Wow. And Chris, has that been common through what you've seen that you had two jobs there, one with a cultural continuous improvement in a family business, then in Jaguar? Has it been common that you've seen it so common across other organizations having cultures of continuous improvement? Unfortunately not. I think I was just really lucky. <laughs> Um, you know, there's uh, some things uh, now I reflect on that I, I realize how lucky I was. And, um, you know, I did have other jobs which, which were rare, which uh, provided me the opportunity to do that. So I, I worked briefly for a year uh, building trains at, at ABB, and that was a fantastic opportunity because they wanted to do something they'd never done before and, and make profit on a small number of trains. So. I was given free reign to do stuff that just had not been done. And, and we, instead of having huge warehouses of material for the whole train, two years worth of stock, we, we had it just in time delivered and things like that. And that was 
just again, just an amazing learning experience. We worked together in what they called uh, sets, simultaneous engineering teams. And I led the supply team, and then I had a partner colleague in engineering, another partner colleague in operations, and the three of us got all our teams working together to to create something in in a collaborative way. So again, that was that was another fantastic learning experience. But um, you know, it's 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 probably the exception. Uh, in many ways where it's that structured uh, and um, when I went out to visit organizations that uh, were, were producing products for us it was a very different experience and it made me it was interesting to see the contrast and, what, and it's only now in, in uh, after many years of doing these things that I like starting to understand what it is that makes the difference what did those early jobs teach you, do you think, Chris? Like those early ones in JCB and then in Jaguar and then with the... Um, ABB and the trains. ABB yeah. and trains. Um, I think they, they, they taught me that um, it's, it's all about people, you know? When I think about, when I reflect on uh, who did I go the extra mile for who did I work hardest for it was the people that I respected and why did I respect them I actually largely because they respected me and then uh, you know it took me a while to learn that and, and um, it's not always been easy to to practice it but that's that's what I've come to realize is the key you know it's that actually everyone has a valuable contribution to make and what makes uh, the better businesses is where people go out of the way to help people to realize their value and and to tap into that that potential that everybody has but often the way that organizations are set up the way that people are managed don't tap into it you know people are, are, are left to um do a do a job or told to do a job in a certain way or or uh, expected to do something without being properly trained without being given a system that helps them and that that for me is fundamentally not showing respect right? respect is about um, recognizing that uh, the people that the people in the business have the biggest impact on the business in terms of they're the people who impact on the customer they're the people who impact on the business results. So if we if if that's true, and many organisations say that, but they they don't really turn that concept into reality. And and so one way I was thinking about it is is to say, well, you know, our role in, in, as leaders in any organisation is to make sure our people have systems that are easy to follow, that they that that they have the training that they need, that they have the tools that they need. And they could be, you know, computer tools or physical tools to do the to do the job we've asked them to do, and yeah. tap into their ideas on how to make those things even better, because actually they know what's not working. And uh, many managers assume that because they've got the title of manager, they have to have the answer to everything and tell people what to do. Actually, the skill is to listen to what people are telling us and let them make the improvements that they know they can do. Well, that's a subtle difference, isn't it? But it's that often I see as a leader, they are seen as the expert and the one that knows it all needs to guide it and drive it. But what you're saying is that shift of being a good listener and learning from your people. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Learning constantly, learning about yourself. You know, what are my preconceptions that I need to change? How, how, how can I help my people? Not, you know, the role is to help your people to see how clever they are, not to keep showing how clever you are. So it's, it, it requires some humility, even if you know the answer. Just telling people builds up their dependency on you and they stop making decisions for themselves. So far better in any conversation is to talk, is ask lots and lots of questions, but not interrogate people, but ask them, have, how have they arrived at that answer? What structure have they used to solve the problem? And be more interested in the way they've arrived at the solution than the solution itself. Because you want to work on the thinking, not on the, necessarily as much on the actual outcome itself. Wow. So you, what you're saying, Chris, is that by listening to people and then asking them questions to help them think and explore ideas themselves, you're helping them grow and develop and you're stopping them becoming dependent on you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I, let's, I, I like to think of uh, people talk about uh, a key tool uh, being gamble walks, which it is. You know, so gamble, going to the point of activity, and observing, but increasingly I see people doing them as audits. You know, oh, I'm going to go and check on people. Well, that's not really the intent. You know, better to think about them as look, listen, and learn. So, what am I seeing? What am I hearing? How are people talking to each other? What kind of conversations are taking place here? What do I learn from it? What do I learn about how well our systems are designed to help our people do a good job? What do I learn about how well I've done my job? You know, so I might expect people to understand what the customer values, for example, or who the customer is. But, or I might, and I might ask, expect them to understand where we're heading as an organization. So I might ask questions about that, okay? But the, it's not what you do that's important, it's how you do it. So if I ask them questions around customers or goals in such a way that I'm testing them, you know, do you know this answer to this? Do you know? That's completely the wrong approach and completely the wrong mindset. What instead I should be doing is asking them those questions to find out if the way I have communicated it is working. If the system that as leaders we have set up to deploy the goals is effective, that's what I'm testing. Because the responsibility for that is in the person sending it, not in the person receiving it. So if they haven't understood it, that's not their fault. And that's a whole shift in mindset that's required to, for, to develop a culture of continuous improvement. It says, you know, if people haven't, aren't doing the job that we need them to do, why not? What have we got to do to help them to do that job? Yeah, wow. So it's, it's looking at the systems and asking questions in a way that's not interrogation that sound comes across as if you're blaming a person or trying to interrogate a person. It's more truly trying to understand is the system and business and culture working in the right yes. way? Absolutely. Yeah. Chris around, yeah. you mentioned around the, the topic there of um, goal deployment and, you know, I guess linking back to top line goals and strategy. What's a good example of a, of a question that you've seen asked at the front line that is not an interrogation, but can be more said in a way that is uncovering is the system working? 
Well, you know, for example, if people have got a, a visual management board with measures on, you, you could ask them to explain the measures. So why, why, um, what are these measures? Why are they useful to you? What are they? So what you're looking for is, you know, have you got a, have, have you got measures first of all? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Well, what, what, what do they tell you? Okay, so, so, uh, and then why do we, why do you measure those? You know, and if you get an answer that says, because the boss has told us, or, well, we always measured it, I don't really know, then what you, people are going, they don't really do it for the deep, any deep understanding. You know, it's always older than that. Whereas if you get an answer that says, oh, well, you know, for, um, for example, one organization I, I knew uh, worked out that they could have a competitive advantage if they were able to produce each product every week. So maximum one week lead time was the target. In fact, that's what it started with. The customers said, can, if you can have a one week lead time, you can, you know, we'll give you more work. So they then started, well, how do we do that? Well, what we'll have to do in effect, you know, we could try and stock masses of every product, but that would cost us a fortune. So it, if we can make every product every week, then we know on a weekly cycle, we net a maximum one week lead time. Now, there's a bit more to it than that, but to keep the story simple, um, so then they said to guys, okay, well, we need to, that means we need to change over the machines in a certain amount of time. So if we can get the change over time down to six minutes, then we can do every part every week. So what they then did was make that really clear. And they got teams working on how do they do it? And different teams, different areas, almost like a friendly competition. But we are going to have to get the six minutes. Now, if you went there six months later and said to guys, um, How's it going? What what you know, see? You've got a a change over target there of six minutes. Why is that? They would say, Oh well, if we hit six minutes, it means we can hit every part every week. If we hit every part every week, it means that we can have a one week lead time. If we got a one week lead time, we'll sell more stuff. Nice. So that it's that connectivity to what the customer values. What am I doing that will help achieve that value for the customer and for the business results? And also make me feel good because I understand how I'm making a difference. Yeah, and I'm playing a part in it too. Yeah. 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 Chris, what was it? What were the moments through your career that started to highlight these subtle differences to you? So that difference that leaders approach people not as the expert, but they approach to listen, learn, and help people grow. And then this other bit of leaders' capability at effectively deploying goals and objectives, and actually then in involving and empowering people. I think it. I think it was. It was over time. It wasn't something that I just had an epiphany over. To be honest, it took me quite a while to realise what it was and learning it and observing different things. And I think I've, I've been very lucky in that I have seen so many different organisations around the world. So, you know, one of the jobs I've done is to do lots and lots of assessments. And I've probably been to over 200 sites around the world doing uh, maturity assessments of the organizations. And when you do that, you get to see some of the best places in the world. And you get to see, start understanding what is it that makes them the best. And, you know, I, I still now learn something every single time I go somewhere. Uh, and because people are continuously improving. I had a great question from someone last year who said, do you think we need to continuously improve the way we do continuous improvement? I, absolutely, you know, because you, you can't stop improve, improving and learning all the time. And so 
everywhere I go, what I can tell when it's working well, you can feel it. You get a sense of people that are engaged, you know, and people want to show you stuff. Oh, come and look at this, look what we've done here. And they're passionate about what they do. Not in some uh, kind of uh, surface way, but deeply, you know. Yeah, I, I enjoy, they enjoy coming into work. They, when someone asks them, where, where do you work? They would say with pride where they work. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's important. Uh, it's not, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with uh, being proud of what you do. You, you don't want to go into arrogance, but, but actually people need to be proud of what they do because then that's a big pride and then the trust in people builds up that engagement. Wow. So Chris, you're saying to me that through these great companies you've seen, I understand that's through you doing Shingo assessment work and working with lots of other lots assessment of different companies. companies. Yeah. But you're saying that through these great companies you see, they've achieved staff engagement and empowerment and inspiration through their engagement with them and continuous improvement and actually helping them engage to make the organization better. And that's... Yep. Something I don't often hear, you know, I often hear people talking about, we need to get our people engaged. We need to motivate our people. Then we will get improvement. Then we will get gains. But you're actually saying through your approach to getting continuous improvement happening and getting your improved organization moving forward, you can actually achieve yep. engagement, motivation, and Absolutely. Drive. Absolutely. You need something tangible for people to do. You know, just saying, oh, we need to engage our people. There's a wish. What are you going to do to engage them? Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll send them on uh, boot camps or we'll give them some training or we'll, you know. Uh, ping pong tables. Ping pong tables, you know. We'll, we'll, it, well, great, they're nice things to do, but that's not going to really shift the culture. It's got to start with the senior team saying, what is the culture that we want in the organization? If we want a culture of continuous improvement, what does that look like? And it's got to be a case of starting with looking in the mirror you can't say we want to engage our people okay well first of all are you engaged what as a team you know what is it that you need to do to be for you to demonstrate that you're fully engaged and what are you going to change because unfortunately often the view is oh well no we need to engage our people need to be engaged okay well what are you doing about that then you know so how are you how are you going to be engaged so let's start with some behaviors as a leadership team that you think you want to be the leading example of behaviors. You, you're just going to set the standard. So how are you going to behave? Are you going to go out and tell people what to do? Or are you going to go out and ask lots of questions with some humility and realize there's probably a lot of things that you need to improve as well? That will start setting a different tone. So start. You know, it's got to start with that open and honest conversation right at the top about what do we need to change what behaviors do we want and it doesn't have to be a negative thing it's it, it could be real positive okay great well what can we do let's let's make it constructive and um then once you start defining those behaviors you can give some freedom to cascade them down start shifting the measures to include key behavioral indicators as well as kpis because we tend to just focus on the output. We want this result. Well, who, how do we get that result? And, and then, you know, yes, some lead indicators are useful, absolutely. But the best forms of lead indicator, as I've learned, are key behavioral indicators. 
If we want that result, how do we want people to behave? If that's how we want them to behave, let's give them the freedom to start creating some measures that guide them in that behavior. And, that and then we have a way of testing, are our systems helping people to behave in the right way or not? Because if we've not defined the behaviors, how do we know if it's a good system? It can be a good process or a good system in terms of getting output, but how does it get that output? Does it drive people to do the wrong thing? Or actually, do we, is it designed in such a way that people are encouraged to behave in the right way to achieve that result? Do they, does it encourage collaboration? Or does it encourage people um, just firefighting to, yeah. get any, to get the outcome at any cost? That's powerful. So mentioning the key behavioral indicators, because have you got an example of a team that you knew had a particular goal and they're able to define some key behavioral indicators that they're able to track and improve to help them then get those goals? Sure. So people often struggle with this because they try and uh, make them very complicated. And uh, there's a couple of key tips around key behavioral indicators. I, I think that um, many organizations probably have them already. They just don't call them that. That's the first one. So, for example, engagement surveys are a form of key behavioral indicator. But I think the really powerful ones are when you can delegate it down to a team and, and they're simple. And uh, the other thing about key behavioral indicators is that they're often temporary. They only need to be in place until you've established the behavior and create the right habit, and then you can change them. So two examples. One team started uh, doing huddles and they agreed that they would get together a certain time every day. And it was only meant to be 10 or 15 minutes and people were turning up late. So they, they let this ride for a few days and then they said, well, hang on a minute, guys, you know, you've, we've already spoke about that when you, were, you weren't here, when we went back over the conversation again, you know, this is not really what we want to do. Can we agree we'll all be on time? Oh, yeah, okay, okay. So they, they agreed and then it still was happening. So they said, right, we're going to start measuring this. And we're going to put all our names on the, and this was a team, so there's a collaborative, put all our names on this board next to the visual management board. And every time someone's late, they'll get a cross against the name. Are we all okay with that? Ooh, so, well, I agree. So they agree that. And anyone who has three crosses has to buy a cake for the rest of the team. All right. Now that's a KBI. Yeah? Now I think the story they told me was that two people end up buying cakes. Okay. And then everyone was on time to the meetings from then on. And they stopped measuring it. It wasn't actually needed anymore as a measure. So that's a simple example. And the power of that is it, it had a big impact on how the team actually performed, how they collaborated together, because then it meant that they were working together in a very different way afterwards. Um, so that's one example. A, a, a different example, um, again, related to, to a huddle, a team wanted to make sure that the conversations were of value to the customer. Now, in this case, they're a finance team, so they had internal customers. And, and um, what they decided to do, once the, the process had been running a while, they, once a week, invited a representative from their customers to visit the huddle and observe the huddle. And at the end of the meeting, they would say to that representative, did we discuss the things that are important to you or not? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, they've got, a, 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 they've got that as a question on the visual management board, put a green sticker on it. If the answer is no, put a red sticker on it. In either case, if it's red, say, well, what did we not talk about? 
And if it's a green set, well, what is it that you really valued in what we discussed? Now, what did, what, why is that a KBI? Well, because what it's doing is influencing the conversation and the way they behave at the meeting. So the behavior is, are we focused on the things that are important to our customers? Or are we just looking inward at ourselves? Yeah, that's powerful. And then again, Chris, it, I guess over time it becomes a habit. What do you believe it is yeah. that makes it become habit then and gets to the place that they don't have to have it on the board anymore? It's a, a, a really interesting uh, question. And there's a lot of uh, that that we explore in the book four plus one uh, about the four, four habits and then the plus one being the leadership habit of, of Gamba. But essentially it's about repetition, really. So if you do something three or four times, the chances are that you'll revert back to what you were doing before, you know, uh, because what happens like athletes training, you have to keep doing it again and again. And when you keep repeating something, it builds a new neural pathway in your brain. Now, if that neural pathway isn't established strongly enough, it'll just disintegrate and you go back to the old path because that's easier to follow. And you know, there's no exact number, but you know, at least 15 to 20 times people have got to do something before it stands a chance of being a habit. And it's got to have a regularity to it. So if something's twice a year, it's not likely to be embedded that much as a habit. And one of the tests is, is to say to people, you know, what, would you, what would you do? What would happen if you didn't do that? So for example, uh, when I'm doing assessments, I might ask someone, um, how would you feel if the company decided not to get rid of visual management boards and huddles, said you didn't, you didn't need them anymore? And the answer can vary. If it's not established as a habit, people will turn and say, oh, that, that'd, be all right. that'd be good, because it means I get on and do my job then. I wouldn't have to waste my time still at that meeting. Whereas, whereas an answer that I've often, more often had is, why would they do that? They can't do that. How would I supposed to do my job? I wouldn't know what's going on. You know, it's because what's happened now is that has become the way they do the job rather than something they have to go along to. Yeah. That's a habit. You do the same with problem solving, you know? So if we tend to jump into the solutions with a problem without going through a structure, then we're not really solving it. The problem keeps coming back and back. Whereas if you get people used to doing simple things like five whys all the time, they get into the habit of doing five whys. And you, you part of that conversation with them when people say, oh, we've got this, this, and this problem. Well, have you done a five whys? Rather than, well, do this. Help them to think about it. If they, haven't, if they don't know what you mean by five whys, or they're struggling with it, then coach them through a five whys conversation. But what you're doing then, you're working on the way they think. Into, that eventually it'll become the habit and they will do the five eyes without even having to ask you. Wow. So Chris, what you're saying is this KBI approach, it can be powerful in trying to help teams develop approaches that they want to take. So if they're saying, well, we want to get better at and solve problems and get rid of problems. Okay. We want to, we want to actually get strong at five whys. helping yeah. them having it then being set up as KBI and being, you know, measured and tracked as part of their huddle or their team meetings could really help them form that habit. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, what, if that's what we want to do, whatever the goal is, what might be some, some really good behaviors that would help demonstrate that? Okay, how might we measure them? You know, and don't get hung up on being a complicated measure that needs to go into a spreadsheet. It could just be an indicator, you know, red or green. Or, uh, so it, 
it they are there are ways of more complicated KBIs, but but I think the ones to focus on initially are the, are the simple ones at a team level that help drive a particular goal. You know, you could do it the same with a leadership team. They might have uh, how to what, what to keep a behavior we want to demonstrate as leaders. Okay, well, how how might we measure that then? Yeah. Uh, so um, they might they might decide that we need to encourage collaboration across the team, which, which you know, many teams have an aspiration of. Well, how might we do it? Well, actually, why don't we, um, at the end of each meeting, do call-outs that demonstrate collaboration? And we'll just have a simple thing on the board which says how many, how many call-outs have we done, you know, and, and are, we, are we doing it? But, you know, that might sound a bit strange, but unless we actually measure something in that way, it will just be a wish and it will never really happen. Yeah. You'll never form that pathway strong enough and do the practice long enough. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, I know you've written some amazing books, four plus one, the essence of excellence. What inspired you to get into putting this knowledge down on paper and writing these books? Well, first of all, I have to say I didn't write them on my own. So, so they're all collaborative works. And uh, all, all, all my co-authors, Peter Hines, uh, Morgan Jones, uh, Brent Harder, need to be acknowledged because that really was a big team effort against the different books. And um, what inspired me to do that was really there's only so many people that you can reach uh, either in workshops or, or on, on sessions like this. Um, lots of people like reading books. Um, and so I thought it was a good way to share stuff and to, to get more, make some things more accessible to people. And, and, and we learned a lot and we wanted to share those learnings and, and we enjoyed writing them. So I think that were the, that, that's what it came down to. Well, so the, the ability of a book to have mass coverage and get knowledge out to a broader audience and what you can do as a physical person going company to company. Yeah. Yeah. That was the main reason for me. That's a good driver, Chris. That, that's impressive. Mate, with your books and what you do, I know you inspire a lot of people. And, and for everyone on the podcast, Chris has helped me so much throughout my career. You know, I've had a lot of time with Chris. Chris, who's motivated you and supported you over the years? Like, who have been those mentors that have really helped you and why have they been so good? I think I was very fortunate to have some great managers throughout my career. All the managers that I worked for at, uh, at JCB and then at Jaguar, they all, they all inspired me to do uh, better and to, to learn. I learned a lot from them. And they also, also gave me the safety to try things and, and make mistakes and, and learn from them. So I think that's important. Um, and then uh, Peter Hines has been, a, has been a fantastic colleague and friend for over 25 years now and, and uh, has been a great inspiration for, for many, many things. So, um, but then, you know, uh, lots of people in the Shingo Institute as well, and lots of, lots, just every, so many people, to be honest. Every, every person I meet, I think I learn something from. Yeah, I, I can understand that, especially if you're going to learn, look, see, learn. Yeah. Chris, yeah. What, what is it that, we've covered some topics today, and we've been talking about leaders that go and ask questions to understand rather than tell and dictate and have all the answers leaders who help people set goals but then help people develop their kbis and the things they're going to improve and really strive for to achieve those goals what are the key things 
that help that actually help companies make that happen and get that in place and part of their culture. And then these organizations that you're talking about where it just seems to struggle and it doesn't happen. happen. What's the difference between those? Good question. Um, I think it has to start with a mindset of the leaders. And um, one way perhaps to think about it is to, is to say as a provocation to a leadership team. So who, who is it that knows what's not working well in, in the organization? Who is it that knows it could work better than it is? And uh, they'll often very quickly say, oh, the people doing the job know, know best. They know what's working. And then you say, well, who is it that's making all the decisions about what needs to get improved? And they all look at each other, well, we are. So like, well, you kind of spot the problem then because um, you, you, know, you often see, hear people say, oh, this thing has come down. We've got to do it this way now. Well, that, that'll never work. Why have they done that? You know, well, that, and that's a classic sign of people not being listened to. So I think what makes the difference is to, is to show humility and to show respect. Uh, respect create a respectful workplace, create a safe environment for people to work in, respect them for what the value they can bring, respect them by giving them the right tools, respect them by uh, giving them good systems to work with. And they'll respect you back and they'll respect the organization and, and they'll give more as a consequence. So what makes the difference is a lack of arrogance. Yeah. So where arrogance rules at any level, you get uh, disengaged people. I know best, just do what I tell you to do. People switch off. Yeah. You don't get anywhere near the level of engagement, which means you don't get anywhere near the level of contribution that they can bring. So I, I, I think uh, hu humility in terms of recognizing that create an environment where people feel valued and feel that they're making a difference and they can contribute makes a great business. Mm. Yeah. And that's interesting. So it's an interesting way to look at it, that what you don't want to see is arrogant because arrogance yeah. leads to all the negative outcomes that can happen in an organization. What yeah. you do want to see is respect, humility for people. And that brings out, the positive outcomes that happen in these great organizations that you've seen. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that simplifies it pretty easily, doesn't it? It sounds simple, but is it simple? Uh, no, I think unfortunately it's not because um, there's, there's a few things get in the way. Uh, ego is one of them that gets in the way. Uh, it's hard often. Um, often the way that people are rewarded and recognized gets in the way, you know, uh, doesn't encourage the right kind of behavior sometimes. Um, also, um, the need just to get stuff done and, uh, you know, getting get in the way, no, just do that. It needs to be done now. Whereas, uh, so breaking that firefighting cycle can be difficult. But actually, uh, my provocation to, to leaders is actually uh, look in the mirror because your, your behavior is often the biggest cause of firefighting because you're trying to solve every problem. Yeah. engage your people and come up with the solutions and, and let them get on with it. And you're right. If, if a leader is solving every problem, every monkey's on their back, so they're overburdened, yeah. they're firefighting yeah. like crazy, and then yeah. they're driving that behavior into the company. And you're getting a vicious cycle downwards then. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That, that's insightful. <laughs> Chris, what, what are you focused on now? Like we've covered the career, the assessments you do, the insights you've had, and thank you for sharing that knowledge. 
I know a lot of that knowledge is in your books, four plus one and the essence of excellence. Like I've read them and enjoyed them, but I've gained extra knowledge today too. What are you focused on now for the future? There's also a third book, which I, which I wrote for the Shingo Institute called uh, Enterprise Alignment, uh, which, uh, which is um, very, very much got some of the, expands on some of the stories I've told today and talks about my experiences throughout my career. And I'm currently writing a fourth book called, uh, called Why Bother, which is it's about why bother doing assessments. Because uh, what I've uh, come to realize is that they are one of the key yeah, things that help to sustain a culture of continuous improvement and continue to take it to the next level. So that, that I'm collaborating with Morgan Jones on that one again, and we, we hope to get that out by the end of this year uh, in terms of to the publishers. So that's, that's currently a big focus. and. Um, I'm also working with Peter Hines on another book for the Shingo Institute. So they're, they're, they're keep, keeping, keeping myself busy with more writing at the moment. Wow. Yeah. Well, you've certainly got the more knowledge to share and the books will put it out there more broadly. Thank you. Chris, what would you say to a, a new leader or a leader just looking to start this journey? What would you say to them? Where would you discuss with them to start or recommend they start? Uh, I think... Um, Go and visit a couple of places is always good. Yeah. And you can do that virtually these days. There's lots of study tours virtually to some great organizations. Uh, well worth, well worth doing. And, um, just to see something different. I think, um, start with asking yourself what would make it a great place to work for you. Yeah. Well, how would you like it to feel every time you come into work? Yeah. And then, you know, what's the culture you, you would like? What's the behaviors you'd like to see? Start behaving in the way that you think will create the right culture. Lead by example. Yeah, that's powerful. And, and Chris, with, how can people reach out to you? If people want to get in touch with you and learn more or connect and discuss more, how can they reach out to you? Um, I, I've got a website, cbenterpriseexcellence.com. Um, you can email me from there or, or, or even easier just link into me uh, I, I, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn so uh, you'll be able to find me there if anyone wants to reach out yeah, well, Chris thank you so much Chris I really enjoyed the conversation and thank you for helping us to create a better future through all the work you're doing <laughs> well, thank you Brad it's been a real pleasure and thank you very much for the opportunity cheers Chris what a great episode with Chris Butterworth my two key takeaways from this episode were avoid being an expert leader unless someone requires training and the power of defining challenging goals and then the key behaviors and key behavioral indicators to track improvement. To shift from an expert leader to more of a humble, inquisitive leader seems simple. It requires simply asking more open probe questions to get people to think for themselves and learn and grow. The difficulty is a habit change in the leader that is required. A leader may already be busy, already have a lot of problems on their plate, and this can be difficult to shift. To help with this, I would establish a system to check progress and make adjustments as a leader if you truly want to make change. Consider finding a mentor or coach to help you with this reflective and improvement approach over time. When defining goals and then relevant behaviors or key behavioral indicators, it is important that these are linked to top-line strategy, as Chris mentioned. Work with your team to define their challenging goals that are linked to top-line strategy over the, for the strategic period. And then also for the short term, you know, you may then set a target 
for the next week or the next month or the next quarter. Then ask yourself as a team, what are the key behaviours that we need to improve to do better, to do more of, that would actually help us achieve that short-term target and then ultimately keep moving towards that longer-term challenging goal? The cause tree mapping approach or root cause analysis approach can really help with this. Ask the team, okay, what behaviours do we need to improve to achieve this result or this goal we're chasing? And then you can ask again with those behaviours that come up, what do we need to do to achieve them? You can keep going further down the, the cause tree system to find all the potential leading behaviours that we could improve to achieve either better cultural outcomes or performance outcomes to ultimately help us achieve our goal. So these are some simple techniques that I hope help everyone. And thank you again to Chris Butterworth. That was a great episode. Bye for now.